Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of April 26th, 2021. On this week's show, we'll assess the extremely fast and incredibly delicious collapse of European football's Super League. Tarek Panja of the New York Times will join us for that conversation. We'll also discuss Stephen Curry's ridiculous April, during which he's averaged damn near 40 points per game. And finally, we'll interview transgender runner and medical researcher Joanna Harper about the fight over and future of transgender athletes in girls' and women's sports. I'm the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. I'm in Washington, D.C., looking via Zoom at Slate's national editor, the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4, and my friend Josh Levine, who's also in our nation's capital. Hey, Josh. What a sweetie you are. We're, we're flipping uh, things, switching things up for uh, people. We got to keep them on their toes. We call that muscle confusion. We don't want people to just kind of get no complacency. Used, to the, used to the same mental mm. exercises. Listener complacency mm. is a bad thing. I feel like we need to be uh, a little bit more harsh on our listeners. We just provide them with all mm. of this enjoyable content. Give, every week. Give, and don't spend give. enough time yelling them and telling them how inadequate uh, inadequate they are. Yeah, it, we need to be more like, you know, a high school football coach. Speaking of high school football, <laughs> segue, joining us from Palo Alto, California, okay. Slate staff writer Joel Anderson, host of Slow Burn Season 3 and 6, high school football star. What's up, Joel? What's up, man? How you doing? I was wondering where the high school football connection was coming in. I'm glad that you, you circled it back around to me being a star. Because that was important. Because I'm I'm more than high school football player. College. I've got multitudes. Player. Yeah, not a star. Though. Not no, a college football no, no, star. No, 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 not no, that. No. <laughs> not, not gonna not gonna give you that, man. <laughs> Journalism being the first draft of history, the full story of the Super League has yet to be told. But when it is, this tale of arrogance, greed, and incompetence by an international cast of billionaire oil barons, industrialists, and financiers deserves to join the pantheon of all-time marketing disasters alongside Heaven's Gate, New Coke, and I don't know, the Hindenburg. Tarek Panja and Rory Smith of the New York Times produced the definitive TikTok of how the debacle went down last week. I particularly enjoyed this detail about how, despite internal doubts about the plan's readiness, some of the owners of the 12 breakaway clubs from England, Spain, and Italy said, eh, screw it, let's do this, and pushed out the announcement. It was made at 11 p.m. last Sunday in London, and Panja and Smith quoted one executive involved as saying, it was dead in the water by 11.10. The Times' Tarek Panja joins us now. Welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be with you. Thanks for coming on. You guys wrote that the Super League is a story of egos and intrigue 
avarice and ambition, secret meetings and private lunches, international finance, and internecine strife. It was epic. It's been a week, and I'm still asking myself, possibly rhetorically, Tarek, even by the standards of venal world football and self-delusion bazillionaires, how did this happen? It's a question uh, that we'll be we'll be uh, asking for several years. Like you say, um, it's one of those collapses, one of those fiascos that that we haven't seen the like of before. And this is a sport where we do have fiascos uh, on the on the regular. Um, partly, I believe, is it, it's to do with the fact of the cast. You're talking about billionaires and plutocrats. Uh, oligarchs and sheikhs, etc., all in a room together. These are uh, men, and they were all men, who always get their own way. Um, and they thought, hey, guys, we've got a great plan. We're the smartest people in the room. We're so rich. I'm sure we can make it happen. And it was they forgot about the fundamentals about global soccer. It's the people's game. They forgot about the people. You said exactly what my lead-in was going to be. It's an important reminder of a maxim that I think we should all internalize, which is, just because you're rich does not mean you're smart. And I also wanted to ask you a question kind of uh, leading off how you ended your remarks, which is, how important was the fan and player revolt here? Because that's the kind of like romantic underdog story that we like to tell ourselves is like, oh, the fans massing outside of like Manchester United was what turned it or the players like wearing those shirts. Like, is that just like kind of a a nice, happy story about like the little guy winning? Or is that actually fundamentally what happened? And, And that's how this thing fell apart. Yeah, I think it's a critical component, despite it being kind of this happy, clappy narrative. There is a there is an element of, of, of truth to it. And I think it shook executives, certainly when it came to the English teams. I think we have to separate this out. There were six English teams, three Spanish teams and three Italian teams. And this battle for the soul of football was targeted and won in England. The The opposition in Spain and Italy wasn't so vociferous, certainly not when it came to um, the people, the public, the fans in the street, or the or the media as well. In that in that sense, why so do you this, think this, that is? Well, a little bit to do with the dynamics of 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 each of those countries. Of the of the three, I mean, we're talking about a pan European Super League uh, that only involved three teams. I mean, that's a conversation that we can put a pin in and speak about a bit later. But 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 you're looking at the dynamics, market dynamics in particular in Spain. You have already essentially this Real Madrid and Barcelona duopoly that has disappeared and over the hill, uh, and they're kind of um, uh, untethered from from the domestic competition already in many ways, uh, and they were selling this idea that in order to continue being these mighty powerhouses and get this interest, that they'll be well served with being part of a, a European elite, and that opposition really didn't exist in Spain at the media environment. Real Madrid is a um, institutional powerhouse. It's beyond soccer, beyond sport, the power Real Madrid has in Spanish society. And those are levers that it's able to pull, both with uh, with government and also particularly with the media. Real Madrid maybe has two newspapers that are seen as pro-Real Madrid, as, as though they were political parties, pro-Real Madrid. And Barcelona would have its newspapers in the Catalonia region, which are the Barcelona newspapers. And these are sports newspapers, which are perhaps the most, um, had the highest circulation in, in, in Spain, the, the sports press. Uh, and then in, in Italy, Italy is a, the Serie A has been a fiasco for, for a really long time. The Italian league has been on its knees for a while. And in Andrea Agnelli, the president of Juventus, 
they, they've got used to this kind of drumbeat to secession, as it were, this idea that they were going to go away. And there just wasn't that same kind of passion. In, in England, there has been the fans like to be seen and have their voice heard, whether it's heard or not, like to be seen to have it heard. The fan protests are, are, are probably as high as anywhere else on the continent apart from uh, Germany, uh, which is why maybe you didn't see a German team sign up immediately. Um, but the, the fan the fan revolt would have been an obvious consequence these guys should have seen coming. And as far as the, the players were concerned, that really rattled the, the clubs as well. So if you look at this project that was launched when Europe was asleep, Sunday to Monday night, by Monday morning, Monday afternoon, you had fans, players and coaches of the teams that were leaving, essentially the employees of, of these executives who had agreed to this, uh, revolting on the plans and adding um, a dose of social media amplification. And it was the perfect storm. There's a lot of, I think, dancing on the grave of the Super League, and some of that is natural and healthy and justified. Um, and to follow up on the fan conversation, you know, what really needs to happen here and what the Super League demonstrated is that there are serious financial inequities in European football. Um, and the 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 changes that would need to happen to repair some of that, I don't think necessarily would please fans, right? There's already been some dissonance here. You know, those Chelsea fans were protesting outside of Stamford Bridge last week, but how are they going to feel if the richest clubs are forced to restrain their spending to get things into line? There was a, I read a piece by a columnist in Liverpool who said the club could make it up to disaffected and angry fans by making some huge signings during the next transfer window, which is kind of how we got here in the first place. Yeah, and there speaks the hypocrisy and the one-eyedness of all of this. Let's see, uh, as you say, uh, if, if there's more of an equitable distribution of, of soccer's riches. The, the problem, in a way, has been shaped by, by the media in modern football as much as anything else. The stories that attract the most interest, the ones that get clicks and eyeballs, etc., are the ones that are the fantasy stories. Who are we going to sign? How much are we going to pay? Almost, It's almost a game in itself outside of what's happening on the field. In fact, I would say those stories generate way more interest than actually what happened on, on, on the field on Sunday or Saturday night or Wednesday. And this is the kind of... Um, crazy situation that the game has found itself on. And I guess um, the fans now um, expect a quick fixes. And this is this is the mess. I mean, you look at the state of Barcelona Football Club, for example, um, whose motto is more than a club because it means something. It's a, it's an institution to the people of Catalonia. It's a bastion of, of, of Catalan freedom in many ways. But, but it is in a right pickle. Um, it has overspent spent money that it didn't have it's borrowed against its its future revenues in order to try and keep up in order to keep winning and then no one no one has asked themselves in the in the 80s in the 90s barcelona didn't have to win every game barcelona didn't have to win every trophy real madrid the same this 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 club only won its first european cup which is now the champions league in 1992 this sense now of we have to win, we have to crush our opposition uh, and we have to spend to, to do that, this, this, this kind of arms race. It, it wasn't a part of um, the, the game of soccer historically. It is a modern phenomenon, partly because of TV, uh, explosion of the TV market, but also a kind of 
a way of thinking that has engulfed the game. That is that you know, spend, win, spend, win, spend, win, and that that is all that matters. Um, and there's other currents that have pushed this this on as well. You know, I was just off the phone with a, a senior member of the European Parliament, and they're talking about you know safeguarding and regulations to protect the game, etc. Well. You know where were these people before? Because one of the currents are the 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 these uh, the arrival of oligarchs, nation states from the Middle East in in in, in buying um, uh, local soccer teams etc. and 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 sort of pumping them full of their um, their wealth. The oil they're selling in the Middle East is now fueling the transfer bubble in in Europe. You can argue that money is coming straight from Abu Dhabi and Qatar into the coffers of Manchester City and Paris Saint Germain, for example. And and that is inflationary pressure. Um, and then if you're Barcelona and, and Real Madrid, clubs that can't be sold, they're members clubs. So how do we keep up with these guys? And it looks like they can't without bankrupting themselves. And we're, we're in this mess. And in order, this was a quick fix in many ways. Let's uh, blame the pandemic for our mismanagement. Yes, the pandemic has been painful, but the mismanagement conditions pre-existed the, the, the global pandemic and the impact on finances from, from closed stadiums. Let's use this fig leaf and let's escape from our kind of catastrophic balance sheets by going to a Super League, ensuring that we can then uh, be profitable and powerful again and, and rid ourselves of all that red ink on our balance sheets. I just think it's truly, truly beyond remarkable, like how poorly conceived this was from a, a marketing and salesmanship point of view. And I guess the question is, is there a way that this could have worked, that a European Super League could have come together if the kind of puny brains <laughs> that were behind it had been a little bit savvier or a lot savvier? Yeah, and I think that that comes with transparency might be the answer here. If this was a project to save European um, football, European soccer, which is what Florentino Perez, the Real Madrid president, seemed to claim. He said, by 2024, if we don't do anything right now, if we don't do this, our clubs will be busted and broken and soccer in Europe will be destroyed. If it was that existential, shouldn't there have been this grand conversation? Yeah, open the books, have a commission. Even if you have the outcome preordained and no matter what, what happens, you're going to... Um do what it is you want to do. Just make it look like there's a process, at least, and that there's a conversation. Well, let me let you into a, a little secret as well. There, there was a plan that just wasn't actioned uh, to, to have f fan engagement at the center of it, to explain why why they are going to do this, to, to explain not only to the, the external um, uh, supporters and, I guess, customers, which we call them now of modern sport, but also with their own their own staff and people. There was a plan to do all of these things that would make sense, that might have had some buy-in. I mean, the shocking thing a week after is um, not a single person was willing to be a spokesman for this project. Not a single owner, for, certainly from the English side, was willing to put... And they were, they were, they were, they were just fighting among themselves not to be the spokesman. At that point, the alarm bells are ringing, aren't they? If we can't stand up for our own project, if we can't go on television to talk about this, to sell this idea, to talk to the press, who are we kidding? We can't, we're trying to defend the indefensible by the sounds of it because we're not willing to put our, put our face to this. The only person that appeared was 
Florentino Perez, the Real Madrid president, who's dreamed of something like this for about two decades. And where does he appear? He appears at a gaudy, tabloid, late-night talk show that his friend runs. There were no difficult questions asked. He was allowed to just pretty much make things up that, that pretty, were not true. And and the other executives were, were kind of sort of had their head in their hands and saying, God, this isn't good. But I would say to them, well, where were you? At least at least this guy went on the TV and yeah, he made a made a fool of himself, perhaps. But but they were they were in hiding. It didn't help that the American owners in England are among the most reclusive and least public figures in sports. John Henry, Joel Glazer and Stan Kroenke. And. The impulse here, and a lot of this has been blamed on the Americans for wanting to introduce a sort of American-style league system here where you have cost assurances, you've got shared revenue among the teams at the elite level that helps to foster better competition. But the difference, it seems to me, is that, look, it's partly at the root of how clubs function and how they are governed across the continent in very different ways. But also, you know, there's a salary control issue in some American, most American sports that's absent in European football. And I'm sure that Glazer, Kroenke, and Henry would love to see a salary cap in the Premier League um, as long as they could pocket a larger share of the revenues because they are the most elite teams. But those kinds of reforms don't seem like the ones that are likely, even though they might be the ones that are necessary on a domestic level. I think that was one of the impulses that drove them to to the Super League. Looking at the plans, there, there was um, an element in there. It was called the uh, financial stability section of this contract, whatever they, they drew up. And it was quite detailed um, to the point that it said only 55% of, of the revenue should be spent on player trading and salaries, etc. These days, we're talking about something like 70% and, and rising because of the pandemic. You know, if Barcelona doesn't fix itself, its, it's um, revenue uh, to transfer and salary spending would go to over 100 more than they earn, basically, and it would, they'll, be, they'll be spending in order to keep up. So it, it, arguably, they're saying, look, we need to be saved from ourselves we have we have no impulse control here. We're so eager to to win. The pressure of the fans is so high that we have to almost leave the structures of European football and create something that can be policed so hard that we all sign up to in order to do this. And for the, for the Americans as well, um, the impulse is profitability, but also the valuation of their franchises. This uh, at a stroke, um, the values of these businesses: Manchester United, Liverpool, and Fenway Sports Group, Arsenal. Um, would have would have uh, mushroomed. It would have been much 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 larger. And if they're looking at an exit strategy or looking for to recoup the investment they've already made, that would have that would have been hugely successful for them. The other reason is there are financial control mechanisms, both at the Premier League level and crucially at uh, European football level with the governing body UEFA. It was called financial fair play, and there were critical decisions, critical or, or indecision. Over, over, over this project. And again, I just want to talk about Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain, the teams that are owned by uh, Gulf Royalty, who appeared out of nowhere to, to grow into the biggest clubs in the world through um, their cash-soaked largesse of their, their owners. And if the other clubs, particularly the, the Americans, they didn't see this coming. They thought, well, the UEFA has the rules in place, plus 
uh, we're the biggest teams if we're Manchester United or, or Liverpool. We're going to generate um, huge amounts of revenue because we, us American businessmen, can sweat the brand a lot better than whatever's come before. And we're going to be off to the races within this controlled environment. And then they expected that UEFA, the governing body of soccer in Europe, would police this financial control element of the sport a lot better than it did. Now, arguably, they're right. We've seen Paris Saint-Germain essentially go through a process in which the investigators of of these financial breaches said, ha ha, we can show that you have breached our rules and you face sanction uh, and in the end get away with it through um, a little bit of chicanery and maybe a wink and a nod from UEFA itself. And then crucially, uh, last year, Manchester City, which was caught in breach, according to these investigators, and again, get away with a two, it was hit with a two year sanction. The breaches were that significant. And again, UEFA's attempts to justify its position at the, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, essentially the Supreme Court of Global Sport, flopped spectacularly. Uh, some would say, um, We've seen some reporting or some, some, some commentary on this. UEFA taking a dive in this case. And these two teams are, are powering on. So, yeah, th- there was some, some pressure about cost control from these American owners. Let's end by talking about the zeal for punishment here. Um, it started out with the punishment going in one direction, which is FIFA saying that clubs and players who participated in the Super League could potentially be banished from the World Cup. The conversation now has turned to this idea that clubs that joined the league, even though it doesn't exist anymore, should be um, punished for their sins by the league. Um, You know, you have in your reporting, Tarek, about the Premier League holding a meeting without those six teams deciding what to do about them. UEFA president um, has come out and said that all of the 12 teams will face consequences for what they did. Is that actually going to happen? It seems a little unrealistic to me. I guess the bigger question is, when, if ever, will this be forgotten? Or is this going to kind of hang over the head of these clubs, you know, forever? Uh, Josh, I'm going to reserve my, my judgment. I've been around too long. You know, these people talk a very big game. Uh, but let's see. Let's see what happens when it comes to to punishment. We've already seen some backsliding here uh, from from the the control bodies, particularly in Europe, where they've said, "Well, look, we have to separate." Yes, the twelve are going to be punished. Some, um, you know, um, without providing any details of what type of punishment they'll yeah, be. What, what would it? What could it even possibly be? Like, make the owners wear a dunce cap or something? Well, exactly. And equally, equally, they've also said. Some of them have already apologised and we have to treat them differently. You know, we, we, are, we are a football family, et cetera, et cetera. So the mood music to me suggests make, that... Make them read an apology letter in the middle of the stadium? <laughs> they'll have to, yeah, they'll have to, they'll have to do, do, do something, but it, it feels like a bit of theatre, a bit, bit more symbolic than, than, than anything else. However, the three teams, by the way, are still part of this zombie league. Real Madrid, <laughs> uh, Barcelona and, and Juventus are still signed up. And, uh, you know, if you hear the UEFA president of the weekend, and I think he was talking to the Associated Press and he said, those guys, you know, you are going to be kicked out. And, and, I, and I believe that threat feels a bit more real because these guys are still sort of clinging on like barnacles to this project that's been disavowed by absolutely everybody else. So the punishments m- 
maybe meted out to 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 to, to them dif- differently. But yeah, I mean, I I see them being kicked off committees, for example. Um, and we have to separate the clubs and the owners. To your second point, you said, are these clubs always going to be tarred with this brush as being these kind of you know evil incarnate, etc.? But I think even within the clubs, I mean, take the example of the Glazers. They are um, persona non grata among Manchester United fans, certainly those in the UK, since day one. This was a, a club that had no no debt. Um, they bought it in a leverage buyout. About a billion pounds has, has gone out in order uh, for uh, Manchester United to be owned by the Glazer family. This is money that has left the club um, and solely gone towards the Glazer purchase. And for that, they will all never be forgiven. So in terms of how low their reputation is going to go among their fan base, I don't think it could have gone any lower. Uh, so in the end, they, they didn't have anything to lose. I think the ones that are suffering are, are others, particularly, I would say, um, Fenway Sports Group, John Henry and co. They arrived in 2010, promising to be better stewards than the previous American owners, George Gillette and Tom Hicks, who pretty much lost the club in 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 court, huge fan opposition to those, uh, and Henry and Co spoke a good game about being good custodians, being an ear to the to the fans' needs, um, understanding the area. We're gonna we're gonna listen. We're gonna uh, listen before we act, etc. This may have been a, a, a rupture, a breach too far, and I think um, you know Henry had to. Henry, famously, who didn't want to um, appear on video or in the media to speak up for the idea, 48 hours later, you know, he looks like a, a man bereft. He issued a video of apology a to his fans. hostage video, yeah. Yeah, he looked like he was in a funeral home or, or a mortician's office there. And I suppose that kind of look felt apt, given that this project had died. And that's, that, that's, what, that's what it felt like. And, and you know, some, some fans are saying, yeah, fair play. You know, at least he's spoken up. But I think most are... Uh, saying it was largely performative and they had to do it. I think there is a, a great, great rupture there that may take um, a long time, if ever, to mend. Tarek Panja is a global sports reporter for the New York Times. He joined us from London. Tarek, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, we'll talk about Stephen Curry's incredible April. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, you can hear more of our upcoming conversation with Joanna Harper about transgender sports. To get that, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year, and you can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So you'd think by now that Stephen Curry could no longer surprise us. In 2015, he was the first ever player to be elected NBA MVP by a unanimous vote. He was the engine of the league's most recent dynasty, leading the Golden State Warriors to five straight NBA finals, where they won three of them. And he's quite literally revolutionized the game, using unprecedented marksmanship from behind a three-point arc to influence a generation of jump shooters. But you know what? Steph still has never been as productive, never been as potent as he's been in the past months. 
Steph scored 30 or more points in 11 consecutive games, a league record for a player 33 years or older. And for April, Steph has averaged 38.1 points on 53% shooting and 47% from three. He put up 37 last night in a four-point win over the Kings, which included a ridiculous nearly half-court heave at the end of a shot clock early in the game. Just another one of his, you know, the, the absurd becoming regular. But Steph has piled up these unprecedented numbers while his team has a record of 31-30, and 30, which is good for only 10th place in the Western Conference. So, Stefan, the Athletics' Marcus Thompson wrote that years from now, basketball fans should be able to look up this year and see Jokic or somebody as MVP, see the Warriors' record as mediocre, and have the context of what happened completely lost in the data. So, do you think that Steph's performance this season will actually stand the test of time, or will it be forgotten if he doesn't win his third MVP? I mean, how do we forget this guy? I mean, did you see what Doc Rivers said the other day? I don't know if I've ever seen anything like the run that he's been on. Doc Rivers turns 60 in October. A few days ago, Steve Kerr, Steph's coach, said, obviously nobody's ever shot the ball like this in the history of the game. And then after Sunday night's game, here's what he had to say. I've run out of ways to describe Steph's play, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to stop trying and I'll ask you to go back, I don't know, three or four games ago, look at my comments then and use use those tonight again. Uh, Kerr went on to say, the shot making is just unbelievable and mind boggling, but I've used those phrases already, but I know you've got to keep asking. As long as he keeps playing like that, you got to keep asking, I got to keep answering. You know, Joel, Marcus Thompson, in that piece you quoted, compared what Steph is doing this year to Wilt, Kareem, Michael, and Kobe. And what's different is that Kareem, Michael, and Kobe in their peak seasons played for championship contending teams, and peak Wilt in Philadelphia had to contend with Bill Russell Celtics. This depleted, Clay Thompson-less Golden State team is largely ass, and then you know, they still could outright make the playoffs or qualify for the play-in game or whatever the NBA is doing this year. Curry is carrying a team that everybody knows he has to carry, and they still can't stop him from doing what he does. And he has modified his game to accommodate that reality, and he's been nothing but better than ever. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, the comparisons that Marcus made, I think, are apt, but there are two that I thought of that I think capture the fact that his team isn't that good. Russell Westbrook in 2016-17, when Russ won the MVP the year after Durant left, the Thunder weren't very good. They did make the playoffs, lost in five games too, Houston Rockets, and weren't particularly competitive in that series and were never any kind of threat to you know make the finals or win a title or anything like that. But that was the year that Russ became the first player since Oscar Robertson to average a triple-double. And he was doing this from the start of the season. He had seven straight triple-doubles as of December 9th. He was putting up, you know, 50-point, you know, games with triple-doubles. I mean, he was doing some ridiculous, ridiculous stuff. And we, I mean, I guess you don't have the contrast that Marcus is suggesting, but it's like nobody has forgotten that Russell Westbrook season, even though his team was bad. The other one is Kobe Bryant, in 2006, which was one of those kind of like interregnum in between Shaq and Pau Gasol kind of crappy Lakers teams. That was the year that Kobe scored 81 in a game against the Raptors. They lost in the first round to the Suns. But has anybody forgotten 
the game that Kobe scored 81 points against Toronto. Like these things are indelible. And I'm not like well, Kobe. people won't people won't let people won't let Jalen Rose forget that Kobe scored 81 points. Totally. So, and I was not like a huge fan of what Kobe was doing that year. I mean, I was never a big Kobe fan. I think what Russ was doing was extremely impressive. And I find him to be kind of magnificent to watch in maybe small doses. But Steph is the most entertaining player, I think, in NBA history on a moment-to-moment basis. He's appointment viewing. He's the only player in the league where I will just like seek out the highlights after every game. And Joel, you're rolling your eyes because it is kind of a ridiculous statement. But you mentioned the shot against um, the Kings where he collected the ball from past half court, dribbled it a little bit in the front court and threw the ball way up in the air. And it just swished through no rim, like not even close to hitting the rim. And is there, has there been a better highlight this season? Has there been, does he have the top five to 10 highlights this season? I mean, it's... Hey, hey, we did a whole Anthony segment Edwards on Anthony dunk. Edwards dunking on somebody. <laughs> I like that. I like this better than the Anthony Edwards dunk. Get out of here. Okay. Well, can, can I just say, and maybe... Yeah, throw cold water say, all over this, yeah, all over my me, resen- My resentment me. is probably... Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. The part of it is that my resentment, and then, you know, obviously I have a bias here. I'm a Houston Rockets fan and the Warriors stood in the way of my Rockets. But can I just say, you, you mentioned... Kobe and you mentioned Russ. I'm a little sore that Harden didn't quite get his props for shouldering this sort of burden for the last eight years. Yeah, that's and fair. particularly I mean, Harden back- sucks to watch is the problem. But no, that's no, no, no. Oh, see, that's okay. <laughs> there you go. See, so I'm just thinking back. Look, let's just real quick. Let's give some context to what James Harden did in 2019 when he scored 30 points in 32 consecutive games, the second longest streak in league history, trailing only Will Chamberlain, who did it for 65 games in the 1961-62 season. And, you know, there's no way to really contextualize Will's stats, so it's almost like his stats don't count. So, like, James Harden had basically done something that was unprecedented in modern basketball. He did it while having a usage rate of 40.2%, which meant he took a shot or turned over the ball roughly two out of every five Houston plays when he was on the court. It was like unprecedented usage, unprecedented efficiency, and people malign it by saying that he is shit to watch or boring to watch, which I dispute because watching somebody cook somebody possession after possession, James Harden isolates you. You know what he's going to do. You have some idea of what he's going to do and people can't stop it. It's like It's like watching a running back in a dominant offensive line, just running the ball over and over again. I found that fascinating, and I found it interesting to watch. Well, statistically, it's unimpeachable, and you could argue, and people have, that he, if if you want to throw out a similarly ridiculous statement that you can back up, it's that James Harden is the best offensive player at his peak in NBA history. And I think statistically, there's an argument for that. But, But Joel, like, when Steph cooks somebody, it ends with, like, this feathery three-pointer. When when Harden cooks somebody, it ends with him swishing two shots from the free-throw line. I mean, there's no there's no argument about, like, which collection of highlights on a nightly basis you would rather watch. Right, because this is about aesthetics, not just cooking, right? I mean, we don't expect Steph Curry to do what he does because partly it's the way he looks. He wasn't supposed to dominate college basketball. He weighed like 150 pounds soaking wet. He wasn't supposed to be great in the NBA. A lot of it's soaking the, wetness in this he uh, looks like <laughs> He looks like, you know, he 
he looks like he is much shorter than he actually is. And it's that it's that quickness, it's that unexpected movement, it's the beauty with which he floats shots up that make us that draw us to him visually. And I think that's what separates him. And the other thing that I think separates Curry, particularly right now, is the way he has adjusted him his game to, to you know to to be responsible for this whole team, which he didn't have to do with Clay or with Durant. Certainly, um, this is different. You know, he has changed his game this season. He is taking more step back threes, which he didn't take so many in the past. He has become even better on deep threes. Uh, ben Ben Cohen of the Wall Street Journal did a really good piece looking at some of this stuff last week, and he discovered that Steph Curry has been more efficient from 30 to 40 feet than Zion Williamson has been from inside five feet. That's insanity. I mean, he has transcended what we conceive of as good shooting and beautiful basketball. He is the the epitome of those things. I mean, yeah, and he's doing it for a 10th place team in the West. You know, and again, I'm not trying to set this up as a Harden versus Curry thing, but if Harden had done you're all of this, you're not trying to do that. You're, if, you're if, failing. If, if, you're yeah, fail, yeah, you're right. failing to no, not if do Harden that. If Harden had done all of this miraculous <laughs> offensive offense and his team, if, if if Harden had performed in the same way and his team was in tenth place, people would have gone out of their way to dismiss it. Can I just can right? I just ask you though, Joel? If they what? make the playoffs, do you want to play Steph and the Golden State Warriors in the first round? Why not? I mean, they just barely beat the Kings last night. I mean, again, like and. And, and 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 you watched that game, Stefan, because I know you did. Those were not two good teams. Like it's not like 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 that game in, was a mess at the end. The Steph almost threw the ball was away. As bad a basketball right. game as you could ever watch. And that yeah, was Steph, definitely because of Steph. Right. And I just so like yeah, I wouldn't. I'm I'm sure the Lakers would love to play the Warriors in the first round. Any one of the good teams would love to play the Warriors. And I'm again, I don't want to be the person that equates like that to dismiss Steph. But I just, I guess I find some of the the praise of him just a little over the top because we literally just saw somebody play at a high rate of efficiency and usage in sort of an unprecedented way. And all anybody could say was, oh, that's boring. James Harden's figured out how he's ruined basketball and drawing that fouls. Is, that is everything. how I sound. I'll give you that. Yeah, that's how Josh. Yeah, that was my impersonation <laughs> of Josh. And, and, and so, yeah, anyway, but so I, but again, I don't want to take away from what Steph is doing, but I also want people to be like, I think that Steph is getting like the cuddly, lovable, soaking wet uh, praise <laughs> <laughs> that, that a lot of other guys don't get. That's all. So the numbers with Steph on the court or that the Warriors average 115.6 points per 100 non-garbage time possessions. I love I, lo- I love all those caveats. And that would rank eighth in the NBA over the full season. Even that's not that great. I mean, if you if you only had the numbers where uh, with a star just like on the court and not on the bench, every team is going to be a lot better. Um, and so having them be eighth in the NBA with Steph on the court, not actually that impressive. And the fact that they're 99.9, 99.9 per hundred with him off the court, which is like uh, extremely bad. Um, I think the point to make here is that this is not a really, this is not a good team, but that bad teams like with Russ and like with Kobe can be platforms for great players. And what this suggests to me is what is lost when teams tank? The Warriors didn't tank on purpose. Steph was out injured 
for a very long time. But when we're talking about leagues and like the health of a sport, if you have teams that aren't in the playoffs or aren't very good, that are providing this level of entertainment, then that is a sign of a healthy league and a healthy sport. When you have teams that are not competitive for trophies saying, oh, well, the smart thing. So the, I don't know who I'm at. I don't, I don't know who just this is. Just yourself right there. You doing an impersonation of me this doing is, This is an impression of, of, uh, right. of, yes, this is Joel doing me. Oh, the smart thing to do is to <laughs> sit our players and get the quality and get compile many draft picks. So in 2087, we can be good. Like, it, it might make sense it, uh, on a like individual team basis, but as far as league health, I don't want to say it's catastrophic. I'm being very uh, hyperbolic in this segment, but it's not good. Like th- this is good. Like bad team that's this entertaining, that is good. Well, well it's good, no, and it's good for the Warriors' business. I mean, whether the Warriors, well, thank God will, for that. Obviously. Will, well, whether the war, it's smart. Um, you know, the Warriors have played in half of the NBA's ten most watched games this season. They right. suck. People are tuning yeah. in to watch Steph Curry because he's fucking amazing and he's 33 years old and we cannot be sure how much longer he will be able to perform at this at this level. So good for Steph for not, you know, either, you know, wanting to leave, wanting not to play, wanting to be benched, whatever. He is demonstrating that at the peak of his powers, he can have an incredible impact not only on his team well, but on the whole league. And that's, we're saying that's all the, laudatory. We're, we're saying all this, but I mean, by the way, um, Josh, you're underselling what Westbrook and the Thunder did that year. They were the sixth seed in the West that year. A year after losing Kevin Durant, which is actually sort of amazing. So, again, I'm not like Steph is doing great, but let's keep it in mind that he's doing it for the 10th place team in the West, which I'm not saying to necessarily diminish what he's doing, but in terms of his impact on the winning we might want to just talk a little bit about Joel, like what Joel, 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 what? Joel, Joel, Joel. What? He what? draws what? so much attention oh. on offense. Nobody else does that. Nobody Joel, play. Can Steph I, is the only person that gets doubled off the ball and everything else. He's he gets, du- he gets doubled when he crosses right. half court probably more than anyone no. except the, except no. Damian Lillard. Can you imagine how bad the other players on the team are to have essentially a four on three every time? And not be good on offense. I mean, you can't blame him for. I mean, they have his teammates. Is, 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 is Draymond Green a good basketball player or not? Is Draymond Green a good basketball player? Or he not? is a good basketball player, but he okay. needs to be surrounded right. by shooters to be good. Is Andrew Wiggins? Andrew Wiggins? Oh, come is a on, good you're going to argue that Andrew Wiggins? Oh, is, well, I mean, he's not. He's not. I mean, he's not. Uh, he's not uh, a sub. Uh, basketball player, like right, he's not. A, I don't think he's. A, I feel negative. like I feel like if this your the strength of your argument is Andrew Wiggins, then I've already won. And so we can <laughs> former number, maybe former move number on one. to other subjects. Uh, no, let me just go ahead and just say because I did want to say this that yeah, I do agree with what you're saying and that it is great that the Warriors are going out there and playing. You know Thank what I mean? You. Like because it would have been it would have been very you. easy for them. Well, actually, they could they really couldn't tank as long as stuff is on the floor, right? And I think that they thought that their season was going to go a little bit differently. Obviously, Clay got hurt right at the beginning of it, but they had the number two pick in the draft. They got James Wiseman. Who's also um, hurt, by the way. Who's also hurt. And they got Draymond back. Not Steph's fault. <laughs> Not Steph's fault, right. And so so, so you're right. Like We're watching them play these high-stakes regular season games every night, and that's not as common as you'd expect in a time of like load management, right? Every time, every night now, they're playing games that matter. They're not good enough to pull away from teams, and it pushes Steph to do 
and play in a way that we've all wanted to see. I think that's what people were saying, you know, prior to KD getting there or like in the KD era, he was sort of diminished because they were like, well, you know, he's had to, he ceded some of the superstar responsibilities to KD and Clay. That's a really good point. Like when he, when KD was there, he had to give up shots. Like if you want to see Steph at his best, you have to see him without other players on the floor. I mean, it's bad for the team, but it's, it gives us, and when they don't really have a chance, like what else would you possibly want to see from them than Steph just hoisting every time down the court? Right. Yeah. Do you remember when, I guess, LeBron in the 2015 finals? It sort of reminds me of that. And with like, it was sort of fait accompli. Like, like the Cavs were not going to beat the Warriors, but basically they gave Bron an unprecedented usage rate and just said, hey, just fire it up, man. And just another example of a thing that we haven't right. forgotten, despite the fact that they lost. Like people were talking about him winning the you know, MVP the that year. Finals MVP lost, as a, in, a, in a loss, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Next, we'll talk to Joanna Harper about transgender athletes and the politics of transgender sports. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Earlier this month, the Washington Post's Will Hobson wrote a fascinating 4,000-word story about a new cause for a group of Title IX pioneers regulating how transgender girls and women compete in sports. Known as the Women's Sports Policy Working Group, the organization is led by some of the biggest names in the history of the equality movement, Donna DeVarona, Donna Lopiano, Martina Navratilova, who say they want to find a science-based middle ground between outright bans and open inclusion of transgender athletes. But as Hobson's story reveals, the middle ground is complicated terrain, culturally, politically, and legislatively. And this group of advocates of women's rights finds itself criticized by advocates of transgender rights. Joining us now from Corn, England, is Joanna Harper. She is a leading researcher in the area of hormones and transgender athletes at Loughborough University, as well as before and after her own transition, an elite-level long-distance runner. Joanna is also the author of Sporting Gender, The History, Science, and Stories of Transgender and Intersex Athletes. Joanna, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Before we get to the politics, and the politics are pretty ugly, we're talking about discriminatory anti-trans legislation, let's start with the science. The basic issue here is when, for how long, and to what extent trans girls and women should be required to suppress their testosterone levels before being permitted to compete. Joanna, in that post story, you said, my agenda is to pull people toward the middle. The science leads me there. What does the science show? Well, first of all, to be honest, the science is in its infancy. And so the data that we have shows that hormone therapy will mitigate many of the advantages that any trans woman who's passed through male-type puberty will acquire, but it won't eliminate all of the advantages. So it's a complicated thing 
whether hormone therapy is required, whether it's sufficient. And it's also highly dependent upon the 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 level that, that one is is playing. If 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 one is talking about Olympic sports, then I think it's it's paramount that we create conditions under which female athletes can uh, enjoy success. If we're talking about recreational sports, then I think letting people play where they're most comfortable is is more important. Joanna, you mentioned um, the distinctions between, say, high school, college, and Olympic level sports. And a lot of the conversation that's been going on here in America is about the high school level. Can you talk about your views on what should be done in high school, particularly? Well, you've probably touched on the most challenging group to deal with. You know, adolescents mature as adults uh, in very different ways in, in during their high school years. And those who are athletes progress as athletes very differently too. For for many, if not most, high school athletes, they go out for the teams that their friends are playing on. You know, they try and, and they, you know, they want to win, but it, it's not life for them. But there are certainly some high school athletes who uh, achieve on a very high level. And, and so there's, there's this. And then um, the, the rates of, of uh, puberty, uh, how somebody progresses, you know, from age 14 to 17 or 18, it's, it's highly individual. And, and then with trans kids, um, the, the question of, of what is appropriate hormone therapy uh, for trans kids at that age is is also a very challenging thing, and, and so you have all these these various complicating factors, and it makes it extraordinarily difficult to create uh, workable policy for for high school trans athletes. Joanna, I, I had a question, but I want to go kind of uh, add on to that a little bit because, and I'm, I'm reading a quote here from Joshua Safer of the ACLU, and I think he'd said is that. You know, the important thing to consider here as it relates to high school sports and teenagers is are we addressing a problem that actually exists or are we simply addressing a fear? And that's sort of the same question I have. Like what, when people are, are raising this issue here about, you know, high school athletes and the inclusion amongst trans athletes, what, what, what is the actual fear here? Like what do, you, what do you get a sense for like what people are actually, you know, <laughs> trying to stop? You know, first of all, the, the actual fear in, in many cases is the, the people who are expressing fears aren't necessarily being honest. Um, many of these people are, are using trans athletes as a, uh, a political chip to try to advance anti-LGBT uh, uh, policies. So you know, the the actual fear and, and the fear that's being propagated are probably two different things. However, uh, if we're talking about a, a realistic fear, um, it, it is, is this, that um, if we don't allow trans girls, or if we don't require trans girls to go through hormone therapy in high school sports, that some of them will do so very well that that you know they will destroy any opportunities for cisgender girls to to 
earn things like state championships and, and college scholarships. And, and if we talk about that fear, um, it, it, for the most part, hasn't been realized. You know, there are two girls in Connecticut who won several state championships between them. And Connecticut did not require or does not require hormone therapy. And, and certainly, I think that for many athletes, winning a state championship is, is a very, you know, it's, it's a huge thing in, in their lives. And, and so I, I can certainly empathize with that. Uh, the question of, of college scholarships is, is uh, a, a much different question. Um, <clears throat> I think the odds that a, a savvy college coach is going to offer uh, an athletic scholarship to a trans girl who hasn't been on hormone therapy are, are very, very slight indeed. And, and in this particular case, the two trans girls from Connecticut were sued by three cisgender girls. And four out of those five girls have since graduated from high school. And, and part of the argument of the cisgender girls was that their opportunities for college scholarships were being taken away from them. The two uh, cisgender girls who graduated received college scholarships, one to William and Mary, which is a terrific school and has a terrific track team too. Um, the two transgender girls, neither of them were offered college scholarships. So this huge fear uh, didn't materialize. You know, this hasn't been replicated in any other state anywhere at any time. So, so this, this theoretical fear hasn't really materialized. I think it's important to note that according to data, there's less than 2% of high school students identify themselves as trans, and the number of those students who play sports is, is minuscule uh, overall. And I want to follow up on the Connecticut case because on Sunday, a federal judge dismissed it on procedural grounds. Uh, the judge said that the trans athletes had graduated, as you mentioned, and that the plaintiffs couldn't identify any other trans female athletes who might compete against them next year, so the claims were moot. There no doubt will be similar challenges here, and that's the bogeyman um, for, and, and the excuse that particularly in conservative states and right in Republican-dominated states, are using here um, the, the, this notion that somehow women's sports are going to be destroyed and opportunities are going to be denied. Um, you know, it may be a fantasy, as an ACLU lawyer put it in that Post story, LeBron James is going to put on a wig and play basketball with fourth graders. That's not going to happen. But the, the political issue here, and I'd like to pivot a little bit, is that the arguments that are being made by some of these Title IX leaders are being co-opted by the Republican side of this of, of, of this culture war. And that feels a little weird and troubling to me that, you know, the the notion that arguing that the the trans athletes in high school are going to deny girls opportunities is now being seized on as a way to deprive rights to, to trans girls. I mean, that's certainly unfortunate, and it's not the intention of uh, the the women's sports policy group to to you know to have these ideas co-opted in in this manner. I know a couple of the people quite well in that group, uh, and I have a lot of respect for them. Um, 
and and I to believe in in this middle ground. But but yes, uh, there are definitely ideas that have been co-opted by um, by these people who are are whose goal is is not uh, women's sports because they don't really care about women's sports at all. Uh, they're not advocating for for more funding, more support for women's sports. They're uh, just using this to to um, push a, an anti-LGBT agenda. However, you know, I, I do think it is important to understand that, that there is a scientific basis for, um, you know, for the fact that uh, if trans girls go through male-type puberty, and especially if they don't uh, go on hormone therapy, there is a hugely unlevel playing field. But as you said, trans people make up less than 2% of the population. Trans youth are only one-sixth as likely to go out for, for school sports as, as cisgender youth. Um, so, you know, trans, trans girls are not going to be taking over girls' sports. Uh, it's not going to happen. You may see a few isolated cases. And, and most of the time, these trans girls, even in states that don't require hormone therapy, are going to go on hormone therapy anyway because they feel better, they're happier, they're healthier that way. You know, this this Connecticut case was was a huge outlier in in, in many respects, but it, it does illustrate. Um, you know, one of these girls competed in indoor track. I think it was her sophomore year, maybe her junior year uh, on, on the boys team. And then with no physical changes, competed uh, in sort of competed in boys track indoors in the winter and then in girls track in, in the spring and, and went from being a pretty decent high school sprinter to somebody who is now setting state records. You know, I, I think that's unfortunate. I, I, I think those state records probably should have an asterisk next to them. You know, I, I feel for the cis girls who were in that position, uh, and, and I don't think that those rules were the best rules. But, you know, this is something that is is not likely to occur anytime soon again. Joanna, how are your views informed by your own career as an elite athlete and your own transition? Can you describe to folks the kind of data that you collected about yourself? Yeah, first of all, you're being overly kind to me. Um, I never had a career as an elite athlete. Um, I've competed for many years. The most money I ever won in a race was $300. The most money I ever won in a year was just over $1,000. But you ran, um, a, but you I, ran a 223 marathon. That's pretty yeah, impressive. Yeah. It, sub-elite, sub-elite, and, and a career, I, I've had a career uh, first as a medical physicist and now as a, a researcher into transgender athletes. Sports has never been my career, but, you know, I have been a pretty good athlete in uh, in multiple sports for many years, and, and especially as a distance runner. And, and yes, my, my individual path uh, certainly, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, forged a future for me. When I started my gender transition in 2004, um, I started hormone therapy uh, 
And within weeks, I was running noticeably slower. Nine months later, I was running 12% slower. And that's the difference between serious male distance runners and serious female distance runners. So I had lost my complete male advantage within nine months. And uh, as a scientist, I was intrigued by that. You know, how could that happen? How could hormone therapy make so much difference so quickly? So I started to learn about the endocrinology and the exercise physiology involved. I very carefully monitored my own race times and, and uh, associated my times with, with, with various metrics. And, and then I started to find other uh, trans women distance runners who had been through a similar process. And it took seven years, but I gathered enough data for a paper. And in 2015, I published the first uh, quantitative analysis of transgender athletes. And there was literally nothing else like it in the world. And, and I remember at the time, somebody said, well, you've gone through all this, now what's next for you? And I said, well, I don't know. It's not like this publishing this paper is going to change my life or anything, but, but it did. And so suddenly I found myself with more data on trans athletes than all the universities in all the world combined. Uh, and so, you know, um, I, the International Olympic Committee, other world governing bodies started coming to me. The, the press found out about me and, and started asking questions. And I found out that, that I have some gifts in terms of, of media representation, in terms of presenting ideas to governing bodies. And, and so, um, you know, this, this thing that just started out with, well, I can find data and get data that no one else has, has, has become my life now. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's gratifying, um, but, you know, certainly there are days when I just kind of like to be left alone too. Joanna, I want to ask you a question as a sub-athlete, but I'm going to kind of disguise it as a rant, okay? So, uh who gives a fuck who wins high school athletics? And so, like, I'm looking at, I'm looking at Terry Miller and Andrea Yearwood's success. Those are the two Connecticut athletes who ran, uh, you know, the trans athletes that that, that, that won the, the women's spring championships in Connecticut. And they were good, but we're not talking about Shikari Richardson or Shelby Houlihan here. You know what I mean? Like, we're not talking about, you know, future Olympians. So what annoys me is someone who knows that plenty of people will go to the end of the earth to press all of their advantages from like trainers, exclusive travel clubs, moving and transferring in search of playing time or a certain level of competition. Why don't they want to show up and compete against whoever the fuck shows up? Like if you're good, if you're a college level athlete, like you said with Terry and Andrea, the girls that finished behind them ended up, at least a couple of them got scholarships, one to William and Mary. So is is an athlete like as a competitor, Joanna? Like back in the day, like would you have been afraid to run against somebody that showed up in your district and all of a sudden, you know, the, oh, I have to be worried about this, you know, this competitor here? Like it seems like you would have just run, right? Yeah, uh, you know, um, it's certainly true as an athlete that you know the only thing you can control is your own performance, and a large part of you know of, of what motivates me as an athlete and many others is to try to be the best athlete that you can. But at the same time, one of my all-time favorite races was a high school race that I ran where I was up against 
two boys at the time. You know, they had both beaten me the year before, and then I came back and beat them the following year. And and I won this this championship doing it. And so, and, and it was that day that I knew that I could be a pretty good runner. And, and so, you know, so so high school sports do matter. You know, it, it's it's not the Olympics. It's not like this is a professional. You're going to get fired if you don't, you know, or traded to another team or anything like this. Um, so you do have to take this with a grain of salt. It, it's also especially true that when you're looking, uh, you know, for college scholarships, they're more interested in how these girls perform rather than whether they won or lost a state championship, because they're looking at, at girls from all over the, the country. And, and so, um, you know, it, it's how you perform in this pool of all the other senior girls who are then going on to college from anywhere in the country. Um, so whether or not you win the state championship doesn't matter for your scholarship. But by saying that, you know, winning high school championships, you know, they, they, they matter to athletes. All right, we're going to continue the conversation in our bonus segment for Slate Plus listeners. But for those of you who are not Slate Plus listeners, you can join to listen or just we'll say goodbye. Uh, to Joanna Harper. Joanna is a researcher on transgender sports. She's also the author of Sporting Gender, The History, Science, and Stories of Transgender and Intersex Athletes. The introduction to that book is written by our friend David Epstein, um, who was one of the first people to interview Joanna a few years ago. Joanna, thank you for joining us on the show. You're welcome. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. And now it is time for After Balls. On Sunday, the chief executive of Leeds United, Angus Kinnear, published a letter in the team's game program for its match against Manchester United. He went off on the Super League. He called the big six English teams playground bullies, described their actions as deeply cynical and seditious and reveled in their having to eat humble pie. He also wrote, This astonishing ingordigianness has been the unexpected catalyst of creating a furious unity across Nations League's players, owners, and fans. 
Ingordigio-ness got picked up all over the place, of course, because it's weird. The only problem was that after I did a little Googling, I realized that the word is actually ingordigiousness. They left out the S. I have to imagine that Kinnear or someone on the lead staff picked the word up from the Twitter account of an English lexicographer and media personality, in England, I guess you can be both, named Susie Dent. Last Monday, the morning after the Super League announced its plan, Dent tweeted ingordigiousness as her word of the day. It got 151,000 likes. The Oxford English Dictionary defines ingordigious as greedy, avaricious, labels it obsolete, rare. The first and only citation for the word is from 1637, and the first example for ingordigiousness is 1734. So shouts to whoever on the Leeds staff who follows lexicographer Susie Dent and to Angus Kinnear of my new favorite club, Leeds, for approving the use of ingordigiousness under his name. Josh, what's your Angus Kinnear? On Sunday, your LSU Tigers announced that they'd hired Kim Mulkey to be their new women's basketball coach. From a competitive perspective, it's an unimpeachable hire. Maybe the best hire in college sports in recent memory, actually, uh, taking a coach who's won three national titles away from the school where she won them. She's the only person in the history of men's or women's college basketball to win titles as a player, an assistant, and a head coach. She's about to be inducted in the Hall of Fame. Come on. Kim Mulkey. She's good at uh, coaching basketball. From a non-competitive perspective, uh, all right. Uh, as Joel pointed out, she suggested in advance of the Final Four that the NCAA stop doing COVID testing because then you got kids that test positive or something and they don't get to play. Not great. Also, back in 2013, the best player that Mulkey ever coached at Baylor, Brittany Griner, said that her coach had uh, told her and said that gay players like Griner, and now I'm going to quote from an ESPN story, should not be open publicly about their sexuality because it would hurt recruiting and look bad for the program. Really not great. Um, okay, so upon this hire, I wanted to learn a little bit more about this Kim Mulkey and where she came from. The literal uh, answer to that is Tickfall, Louisiana, population 694, Tangipahoa Parish, southeast part of the state, north of Lake Pontchartrain. I have not been to Tickfall, Louisiana, if you're curious. The first newspaper reference I could find to her came in July of 1974 in the Alexandria Town Talk. The headline, Controversy Brews Over Girl Player. Mulkey was then 12 years old. She was playing on an otherwise all-boys Little League team in something called the Dixie Youth League. You can probably guess the politics of the league based on the name. Uh, Mulkey was a great player. Uh, she was hitting 478, uh, but she got kicked out of an all-star tournament allegedly because she wasn't listed on the roster properly. Her father, Les Mulkey, got a temporary restraining order allowing her to play. But then a story published the next day reported that Les Mulkey had decided to stop the legal action because, quote, it would only hurt the boys on the team. So after reading that, I wondered, what is the deal with this uh, Les Mulkey character? Uh, one deal is that he is an exterminator in Tickfall, Louisiana, Another deal is that he is no longer speaking to his daughter, Kim. In 2012, Barry Horn wrote a piece for the Oklahoman headlined, Don't Get on Her Bad Side. That piece includes a story about Mulkey getting on her knees 
to beg for a five-year contract to be the head coach at her alma mater, Louisiana Tech. She did not get that contract from the school president and has never spoken to him again. She went on to become the head coach at Baylor, won the titles, etc. All right, so that's a little background before we get to the less mulky story. In that Oklahoma piece, Kim describes her father as a great dad and says, if I can be half the mother he was as a father when I was growing up, my kids will be good. But Kim Mulkey and her father had not talked as of 2012 for 25 years. The inciting event was Kim's uh, parents' divorce. When Kim got married after her parents divorced, she did not want her father's new wife to sit with a wedding party. Her father didn't agree with that, did not go to the wedding, and they never talked after that. Again, as of 2012, Les Mulkey had never met his daughter's children. In that Oklahoman piece, Kim Mulkey said, I had no control of the situation when he chose to break up our family. But I could control my wedding day. It was my day. He should have respected my wishes. He should have been there for me. This is an intense woman. And maybe she could have benefited from writing to Dear Prudence. That's just a suggestion. (laughs) Uh, But yes, Kim Mulkey, very intense. I have not even mentioned the time. She went for 23 hours and 55 minutes in a roller roller skating marathon as a 12-year-old. People ask me why I don't say I skated for 24 hours, she said. That's simple. I don't say I did because I didn't. In conclusion, Joel, I know you're going to have a few thoughts here, but before you get to that, in conclusion, sit where Kim Mulkey tells you to sit at her wedding. (laughs) I mean, yeah, man. I could presumably... Uh, you know, she got divorced from that that guy that she got married to, Randy Robertson, who I'm sure. Oh, yeah, no Randy Robertson. Yeah. Who was the starting quarterback for Louisiana Tech in 1974 and 75, which means he probably came up right behind Terry Bradshaw right around that time. Terry Bradshaw would have graduated from Louisiana Tech around that time. So um, a lot of, you know, Kevin Bacon, six degrees of separation here with Kim Mulkey. But. Yeah, man. I mean, presumably yeah, I forgot, she's not I talking forgot. about her husband anymore, too, I'd imagine. If she can't yeah, talk so about I, I forgot that part. So in this Oklahoman story, um, here's a paragraph that I'll quote from. Shirley Robertson, so it was Robertson who instigated the divorce. She wanted to stick together. She said oh. she was willing to go to counseling. She wanted, she was willing to give up her career, but he, like, wanted out. Okay, and so that's the prelim before this paragraph. Surely, Robertson must have at least suspected he would have no relationship with his ex-wife. In an exchange of emails, his preferred way of answering questions, Robertson wrote about the post-break relationship. Life is full of surprises and unexpected twists and turns. Most people understand that good communication is a key ingredient to successful relationships. Maybe he should write, dear Prudence. Wow. Not write in. This is very page six of Afterball, by the way. So this Oklahoman story, I mean, she talked to the to the writer. Like a lot of this stuff is just coming directly yeah. from her. Like this is inti- this is uh, a very lengthy feature that has very many descriptions of Kim Mulkey no longer talking to people. In some cases, I think uh, warranted. Maybe in some cases less so. But like it get it gets into it. You think she's gonna? You think she's boring. gonna? You know, say you think she's going to cut off all ties with uh, Baylor now that like that, that she'll never talk to anybody from Baylor again. I'm assuming she never talks to Brittany Griner again. That's a question I would like to to ask. Good follow up question, right? Good like, question. Yeah, a lot of potential future afterballs here. I will be following her her career closely at LSU. So uh, you know, Kim Mulkey probably won't ever talk to me, but I'll be I'll be listening. Can I just say without being too offensive that I mean, she found the one city. 
that. I mean, Waco to Baton Rouge, man. <laughs> I know some people like those cities, um, but if if she's if she's been sort of kind of you know mean and grizzled over the years, I can't help but think that's because she spent the last twenty years living in Waco and is now moving to Baton Rouge. But anyway, the classic tick fodder Rustin to Waco to Baton Rouge. Yeah, arc. but maybe before we get too far into this, Stefan, you can hit us with the closing credits. That is our show for today. Our producer this week was Margaret Kelly. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Josh Levine, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.